Please open your Bible to the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. This morning we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. You can turn to page 974 if you have one of the Bibles that we provided, and the reading will start at the bottom there. We'll read this together in just a second. As we begin, I'd like you to think about the, the way we understand the physical world to be governed by certain laws. Right? These are laws that we've sort of discovered that are there. We didn't create them like a, a legislature creates laws. We see them as sort of baked into the universe by our creator. So what goes up is going to come down, right? Gravity is holding us onto the earth even as we speak, even as if we're not, even though we're not consciously aware of gravity, right? We're not participating in it in any way that we're kind of thinking about. It's just there and it's happening and, uh, and we'll know it though if we fall off the chair, right? We'll know that gravity has taken us down to the ground. There's, there's a way you can think of uh, spiritual laws, not, not talking about Campus Crusade's track, but, but those things that are sort of operating in the background that, that are there that we don't often give attention to. And I think this morning the Apostle Paul keys in on one of these spiritual laws, if you will. The law that, that how we live in the present affects our future. The things that we do and believe now have an impact on what will be on that day of judgment. There's a relationship there. If you've been a Christian for a long time, this maybe seems so obvious that it's not even worth stating. But if you give it a, a little bit of thought, you realize how this really does distinguish, at the very least, you know, certain kinds of religious people from, from secularists who maybe think, well, we're just a bunch of cells, and at some point these cells will cease to exist, and, and what's the big deal? No, we believe in a, a different kind of order, a spiritual order, an eternal order. That all of us are eternal souls. That our neighbors without Christ are eternal and they will face God in judgment. And if they don't turn to Christ, they'll reap eternal judgment. And we who believe in Christ believe that we have a hope for now and for all eternity. This morning, Paul is going to help us prepare now in the present for that eternity. He's going to give us some things that we can do through this letter to the Galatians to help us live in the present with an eye towards the future. So as we walk through this passage with that in mind, here are three ways that Paul would have us prepare. These will be our outline points. First, Paul calls us to know our hope. Know your hope. Implication also there is know the false hopes. So first, know your hope. Second way he wants us to prepare for eternity is to, is to work from our hope. To work now in the present out of the hope that we have for the future. So work from your hope. And finally, he wants us to guard the truth of our hope. That's the final way we prepare for the future, by guarding the truth of our hope. So with that in mind, let's read the passage, Galatians 2, 5, 2 through 12. Listen to God's word. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. 
You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is God's word. As we're in this uh, section of Paul's letter, we're actually in the kind of the conclusion of Paul's main argument. These verses represent a transition from the end of the, the sort of more theological part of the letter to the part of the letter where Paul focuses on the Christian life. And so he does what any good speaker or writer does as he's winding up. He, he reminds us of where we've been and he reinforces the main point. He brings it home. He wants us to see again justification by works is a dead end. He wants us to leave this letter with no doubt about that. Sinners cannot obey our way into being right with God. We cannot do enough good works to make up for our past sins or erase them. We cannot reach God through what we do. Stated kind of negatively, this has been the big point of Galatians. No one is justified by works of the law. But even though this message by this point is very familiar, there's still more for us to see in this message. So as Paul restates the point, let's look carefully at the verbal tenses here in chapter 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you, in the present, where you are right now, if you accept circumcision, then Christ, in the future, will be of no advantage to you. So if we live our lives now, if we live our whole lives, trying to be good on our own, trying to save ourselves by our own good works, then on that day, in the future, when we face Christ as judge, Christ will be of no advantage to us. On that day, we will be weighed by God and found wanting. This has always been part of the message that Paul's had in Galatians. He's always been talking about eternal life by faith in Christ. But now he specifically calls us to think about the future. Again, to tell us this spiritual law, if you will. What you place your faith in now will determine your life for all eternity. One thing that's confusing about this verse, verse 2, is Paul speaks of accepting circumcision, and he repeats that point in verse 3. It may seem like Paul is elevating this act to kind of this high status that it doesn't deserve. Is, is, is circumcision the impardonable sin, we might wonder? To really understand what Paul means, we have to read verses 2 through 4 together. 
And when we do that, we see that accepting circumcision was a shorthand way of saying obeying the Old Testament law with the goal of being saved by it. That's what he means by accepting circumcision. And we can see this because in verse 4, Paul describes those who are accepting circumcision with the words, who would be justified by the law. So that's what he means when he says accepting circumcision. It's just a shorthand way of, of talking about seeking justification through obedience to the whole Old Testament law. Circumcision functions as a symbol for this whole system. And Paul's point has been that system is at odds with the gospel in some particular ways. One scholar put it this way. If the Galatians choose to be circumcised, they are crossing a border into occupied territory where the law rules. The law rules in this way with the words of Leviticus 18.5, which Paul quoted before in this letter. If a person does the Lord's statutes and rules, he shall live by them. Do and live. All those who do the commandments of the whole law perfectly will have eternal life. In that big circle, there's only one person, though. Only Jesus is the one who's done all the works of the law perfectly. Those who fail to do the works of the law, any of it, in any way, reap eternal condemnation from trying to keep the law. And so by accepting the message of the false teachers, Paul's saying, if you accept that message, you are signing up for law, the life under the law's rule. If you try to live that way now, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you trespass over into that territory, the place where the law rules, and if you try to establish permanent residency there, that's like saying to Jesus, I want no part of what you have to offer. And when you come to your last, you will stand before God, your judge, naked, with only your good works of righteousness to cover you. If you live your life now, trusting in yourself, Christ will be of no advantage to you then. He uses, Paul uses two frightening descriptions to describe us if we are seeking to be justified by works. He says we are severed from Christ in verse 4. And then he says we have fallen from grace. These words aren't meant to scare Christians into thinking that a true Christian can somehow lose their salvation. What Paul's meaning to do here is to reinforce the stark difference, a division between justification by faith and justification by works. On the one hand, justification by faith is the gospel of grace, the grace into which God has called us. In the, in the gospel of justification by faith, the true gospel, we see God's promise freely given to undeserving sinners so that they can be declared righteous by faith in Christ. We see God sending his son into our hearts, or his son and his spirit into our hearts so that we can believe and be saved. The gospel of grace is this wonderful message of God's self-giving and of Jesus' coming to bear the dreadful curse for our souls. It's the good news that we are united to Christ, which is another big theme for Paul. And Paul says this union between believers and Jesus is so powerful and so intimate 
that all believers can say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's from Galatians chapter 2. So because of God's gracious sending of his Son and Spirit, those who are believers are now sons of God by faith in the Son, and we can call on God as our Father. So the gospel of grace is good news of our union with Christ by faith. We are joined to him. We are the people of grace. But the false gospel of works is the exact opposite of that. It's not rooted in God's gracious self-giving. It's rooted in human beings earning their way. The gospel of self-justification is not based on something God has done. It's based on what we do. And so Paul says it's not union with Christ. It's being severed. From Christ. To seek to be justified by our good works is then to remain in our fallen state, alienated from God, far away from Him. And so for Paul to speak in these terms of a, a fall from grace in the case of the Galatians is to acknowledge that they have given some assent to the gospel. They heard the gospel from Him, they received it with joy. He's recounted that for us already. He says, and later in our text, that they seem to be running well. But perhaps some of them are on the cusp of abandoning the gospel. And he wants them to know, if you do, you've abandoned Christ. He, he wants them to be warned about not being like that rocky soil Jesus preached about in the parable of the sower. The people, the seed on the rocky soil, they receive the word of God with joy but then they wither away and die because they can't stand the heat of persecution. Or in the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 2, 19, those who Paul describes as severed from Christ and fallen from grace are those who went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become claim that they all are not of us. In our lived experience, we're going to meet people who we're not sure about. They say they confess the same gospel as us, but their lives don't match up or they believe something weird. And we won't know the depths of their heart, their motives, and what they really believe. So from our experience, sometimes things look murky. Maybe we even feel murky about ourselves sometimes. But from God's perspective, from the standpoint of reality, the difference is black and white. You are either living by faith and depending on Christ for salvation, or you're living by faith in yourself, depending on your own good works to save you. You are united to Christ by faith, or you're severed from him. And if you're severed from Christ now, then on the last day, he will be of no advantage to you. Verses 2 through 4 are like a spiral of warnings about this future terror that awaits us if we repudiate Jesus, repudiate salvation by faith in Jesus. But gloriously, in verse 5, Paul pulls out of the spiral. He declares to us the hope that we have if our faith is in Christ. So as Paul says here, 
at the beginning, know your hope. He first starts by, by identifying, here's the false hope. Here's the false hope over here. But now here's the true hope in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The present state of Christians is life under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. It's the life of faith. That's the life we live now. And because of the Spirit's work in our hearts and because of our faith in Christ, we have confidence of what we will be, of what will be for us. We will be on that day declared finally and fully righteous and admitted into heaven. Paul says we eagerly wait for this hope. It's a sure and certain hope. So it's, it's the exact opposite of the feeling you have the day you have to go to the dentist for that root canal, right? You're not eagerly waiting for that hope, right? This is a sure and certain hope that on the last day, we will be found righteous in Christ. By faith, Christ is now, and he will be of every advantage to us. All of his blessings are ours by faith in him. We're united to him sons of God. And on that day, we will be received by God as his beloved sons. So we are sons of God now, and we will be for all eternity. All this talk of the future is, not, is meant to change the way we live in the present. So the way of the old law is the way of we might call slavish paranoia. Am I doing enough? Or was that slip up the thing that completely undoes my project? If we're not paranoid, or paranoid, then the way of the law is a way of delusional confidence. I'm good. I'm not as bad as that guy, right? We all have met people who live in that delusional confidence. Things are good between me and the man upstairs, right? We deceive ourselves into thinking that everything's okay between us and God. But the way of faith is eagerly waiting based on what Christ has done. The way of faith makes us like the kid who a few weeks before Christmas knows what's in the big box. He can't wait. He's over the moon. It's like the happy engaged couple like Peter and Gemma were a few weeks ago who were just waiting for that day to come, knowing the joy that's set before them. It's like the master builder He's got great, wealthy clients. They're paying whatever he asks. He's got all the most precious materials stockpiled. He knows exactly what to do, and he's just working every day, looking for that day when the house is finished. It's like the, the runner who's having the race of her life, and she's feeling it, and she's a mile ahead of everybody else, and she's just running, putting that footstep and the next one down in front of the other, waiting, knowing for the joy that's on the other side of the finish line. The life of faith is a life of joyful anticipation. But it is that because of what God has done through Christ. That's where all those illustrations I just gave fail, right? Even when something looks like a sure thing in our lives, it never is. And the kid may be wrong about the present. And even if he's right, he's going to be bored shortly, right, with it. We know engagements break off. We know that beautiful house might catch fire before it's done. The runner might trip and fall and get injured and not finish the race. 
earthly hopes can be dashed. But with Christ, there is no danger of disappointment. There is no risk that Jesus will fail to save us. It's a sure and certain hope. The only risk that Paul sees is that the Galatians may turn away from their sure and certain hope. And so Paul encourages us, cling to Christ. He is where your hope is. Know your hope. In Christ you have the hope of righteousness. So we're called to live today in eager anticipation of God's final approval. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome into my kingdom. So Paul wants us to know our hope. He wants us to know that seeking life by our own works is hopeless. But by faith in Christ, eternal life is ours. Eternal life is life in God's presence. We can enjoy it even now, but we know that we will have it in the future in a, in a way that we really can't even fathom now. This life is ours by faith in Christ. It's ours today, and it will be ours on that day, because God will receive us, because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Know your hope. But that then raises the question, what should life in the present look like? And this brings us to our second point. Work from your hope. That's where Paul turns in verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The way we should live now is not trying to be justified by our good works. That much is clear. But that doesn't mean our conduct now doesn't matter, as if God doesn't care. We might put it this way. We are not under law, but we are not lawless. This verse is the setup for the rest of Galatians. As you, all, if you know, if you read a lot of Paul's letters, you'll see this general beginning with theology and doctrine, then a move to the Christian life. In Galatians, our text, as I said, is this transition part of the letter where we're moving from the theology to the Christian life. He's winding up the theological section and shifting to what does it look like for Christians to live in all of these things that he's taught us. Even though we can see generally this pattern, it would be a mistake to, to harshly divide these two parts of the letter as if they're somehow unrelated. So we should see that the theological part of the letter is practical, and I hope as we've been going through the theological part, we've made lots of practical applications to our lives. And we also see here that the, the Christian life part is also very theological. As Paul presents his, his practical part, love, he grounds it in theology. What matters to God? What matters before God is not circumcision or uncircumcision. What matters to God is not whether you adhere to certain parts of the Jewish law or not. Your status under that law is not what God looks upon. What God cares about is faith. Faith working through love. We need to be really clear, though. Paul is not replacing salvation by works of the law with salvation by works of love. We might make that mistake, as if he's just exchanging one group of works for another. 
He's not saying now you can earn your salvation by doing works of love. But he is saying something very important about faith. As the saying goes, we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, but this saving faith is never alone. In the words of the great French reformer John Calvin, faith is invariably accompanied by good works. Invariably, right? No variation from that pattern. Faith is accompanied by good works. And so what kind of life should we live in the present? How should we work out our hope? Work out our hope in love. We live by love. We put it this way almost every week in our Lord's Supper service. We come to the table, we say, united with our brothers and sisters in love, confessing our sin to God and resting only on the blood of Jesus for forgiveness. That is faith working through love. Even though the order in some ways is reversed in the way we put it there, we might think of it this way. We love each other because God has loved us. God has loved us through Jesus Christ. Remember the episode where Jesus has a meal with Simon the Pharisee and the woman comes in and she begins to wash Jesus' hair with her tears and dry them with her feet. And Simon you know, is like asking, what, why are you letting this woman touch you? Remember what Jesus says to Simon? Why she loves much? She loves much because she's been forgiven much. And Simon, you love little because you don't realize your need for forgiveness. You think you've been forgiven little. Our knowledge of our forgiveness in Christ, how much God has loved us, is meant to bear fruit in our love for others. Love is the fruit of faith in Christ. And not only is love the fruit of faith, love requires faith. To love the way that Christ loved in a sacrificial way requires trusting God will meet my needs even as I lay down my life. I'm going to pour myself out for my husband or wife or my children or my, my brother or sister in the church. And, and I don't feel like I have the time and energy to do that again. But I trust God will meet that need. He'll provide for me as I pour myself out. He'll provide for me even when this person I'm loving is difficult to love. And they respond to my love with hurting me. It requires faith in God's provision to love that way. We can't love without faith. Scholars speculate that a big reason why the message of the false teachers has taken hold and had success in Galatia was because the Galatians lacked a clear vision of the Christian life. They had understood the gospel, but they felt perhaps the gospel didn't really provide a lot in the way of practical wisdom for everyday life. And so these false teachers kind of had an opening to say, hey, look, I got loads of practical wisdom for your everyday life in the law of Moses. Observe these food laws and these rituals. Here's some practical wisdom for everyday life. But here Paul begins to lay out the practical wisdom of Christ for the Christian life. Faith working through love. In other words, he's saying, here's the kind of people that the gospel of justification by faith alone creates. It makes loving people. People who love each other the way Christ loved us. 
It creates a community that's characterized by sacrificial, costly love for each other. And so we can ask ourselves as a church, does this love characterize our church? And each of us as individual Christians can ask, does this love characterize my life? Is my life marked by faith working through love? If we bring verse 5 into the definition of the Christian life, we can say that the life of faith is not only loving, but it's a, a patient, waiting life. A life that endures, that's looking forward to what's to come. By faith, we know that we are both righteous now through God's declaration, we stand righteous in Christ, and also we eagerly wait that final declaration. But by faith, we know that we have God's promises now and we're awaiting for some sort of more full expression of that promise at the last day. And so we know, in a sense, my best life is not now. It's a patient, waiting life. So we might ask, are we, by faith, waiting and loving? Faithful waiting and loving means, again, that we don't expect this life to be easy. We expect that we will have to be patient as we love those that God has called us to love. For this, again, we need all the resources of God, Son, and God's Spirit it's almost impossible to love well without hope. We have to hope that the person whom we are loving can grow in their knowledge of Christ. We have to have hope that if they don't grow, that God will still be with us and help us to endure in love. And so you should ask, is your love marked by this patient, faithful hope? This may be especially helpful to us when we are tempted to reduce love to speaking the truth. So a lot of us, we hear, you know, Paul from Ephesians 4 saying, speak the truth in love. And that's a really important part of our life together as a church. But somehow we kind of lop off in love, or we just say, speaking the truth is all that love is. And I'm a truth speaker. I'm going to speak a lot of truth to you right now. But Paul says in Galatians 6.1 that when we find somebody in sin, we have to restore them, how? In a spirit of gentleness. We can speak the truth, we realize, in a caustic way. In a way that corrodes those that we're speaking to. We can be harsh with the truth. We can be bitter and hopeless in the way we speak the truth and, and condemn. You're a sinner. And there's no hope for you, we can imply, perhaps, with our speech. As we read, or Stephanie read for us in James 3, our words are dangerous. We must be careful with them. We are called to speak the truth. Sometimes hard truths, confronting truths. But to do so in love. And Paul himself is a model for us here in this passage. Even as he is very clear in warning the Galatians, he expresses his confidence that they're going to come around to his way of seeing things, that they will come around to his persuasion that these false teachers are false. He speaks the truth to them with hope that they will grasp the truth and they will live by it. So we're called to do all that we do with gospel faith and hope. 
After all, we can hope because if God has saved us through Christ, anything is possible for God, right? We ourselves are exhibit A for the great power of his grace. Paul says that what counts for God is faith working through love. He calls us to work out of our hope. Finally, he calls us to guard the truth of our hope. Now, as you were reading along, I don't know if you felt this, but there does seem to be a disjunction between verse 6 and 7. It seems like this would have been a great spot to really expand on what it means for faith to work through love. But instead, Paul returns to this theme of the false teachers. It doesn't seem like it really goes with what he just said. But if you read carefully, you see there are some ways the passages link up. For one, for one thing, Paul continues to speak of circumcision in both parts of the passage. He makes it clear that he is not a circumcision preacher. Instead, he says he preaches the scandal of the cross and is persecuted for it. An even more important link, though, is the theme of future judgment. Paul says that he's confident that the false teachers will bear the penalty for their teaching. And again, we see a contrast between this future judgment and life in the present. Paul in the present is persecuted. But he hopes in the future to be vindicated because of him preaching the truth. He's confident that he is on the Lord's side in what he has to say. These links, I think, help us to draw out an important connection between these two parts of the passage. That faith working through love shows up in our approach to the truth. We love by guarding the truth of our hope. He tells us we should reject false teaching and we should keep preaching Christ and that this is a manifestation of faith working through love. So we believe the truth of the gospel and we preach the truth of the gospel until the last day. So let's just work through these final verses in the passage and consider how we're called to guard our hope, to guard the truth of our hope. So first, Paul calls us to guard the truth of our hope by keeping in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul uses his own running illustration in verse 7. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Paul's concern here is about the Galatians obeying the truth of the gospel. False teachers have come in. They've put a stumbling block. They've, they've made a race detour that these Galatians are following. But there are some phrases here that take us back to the beginning of the, of the letter itself. And so in chapter 1, Paul says that he was astonished that the Galatians were so quickly deserting him who called them. So Paul is astonished that they've deserted him who called them. Now he's concerned that they're following a persuasion. They're being persuaded to obey something that's not from him who called them. From the gospel, they're not, not following God who called them. And then Paul reminds them, or I think we hear language in, that echoes chapter 2 when Paul uh, had to confront Peter. And he confronted Peter because Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's as if Paul is saying, bringing this message home to the Galatians and saying, you are in danger of following the same detour that Peter got off on. You're in danger of following Peter's bad footsteps. So if you accept this false teaching, you're abandoning God who called you, and 
You deserve the same rebuke that Peter received. You're not walking in the truth of the gospel. This is a command or an urging to walk in the truth of the gospel. Keep in step with the truth of the gospel. Continue believing and repenting and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And understand that the way that you live says something to your brothers and sisters in the church. Have you ever tried to look at your own Christian life through the eyes of someone else in the church? What I mean is just ask, if, ask this question. If someone were to closely watch the way I follow Jesus, the way I speak about myself, the way I pray, the way I treat others, what conclusions would they draw about the gospel? Would they think that I'm trying to save myself by my good works? Because I'm always talking about what I've done lately, and what I've accomplished, or I'm judging others by what they failed to do. Or would they see my delight in the grace of Christ? Is my conduct in step with the truth of the gospel? Am I quick to repent? Do I speak of my need for Christ's grace in my life? Or do I try to cover up the fact that I'm a sinner? Does my example encourage my brothers and sisters to run to Christ? Or does it encourage them to put on a hypocritical facade of self-righteousness? In verse 10, Paul will say that the, the false teachers in Galatia were gonna, are going to bear the penalty for their distortion of the gospel. It's sobering. We should ask, am I distorting the gospel by the way I speak of it or by the way I live my life? We should ask, how can I grow in communicating the truth of the gospel to my family, to my church members, to my neighbors? How can I grow in the way I live my life and the way I speak that lifts up the grace of Jesus? So what does your life say? It's a good question to ask. Have you taken some detour from faith in Christ? Have you wandered away from him who called you? If we would see our faith work itself out in love, we should guard the truth of the gospel by keeping in step with the gospel. Secondly, Paul wants us to guard the truth of the gospel by rejecting false teachers. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump in verse 8. And then he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. This is a familiar proverb, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and Paul uses it in different ways. We see it used in different ways throughout Scripture. It's just a way of saying a little bit of something can infect a lot of something. A little yeast is all you need for a whole loaf of bread. A big infection starts with a tiny germ. If we give any room to a false gospel, it can quickly infect our whole lives and a whole church. But again, Paul's warning here is not a hopeless warning. These are not harsh and caustic ways of speaking the truth. He expresses confidence that the Galatians will finally reject these false teachers. Now, to help them along, he makes sure they know his own judgment about them. These false teachers are headed for judgment. And you notice he uses even more colorful, stronger language in verse 12 about these false teachers. So Paul is clear. But even with his strong language, 
Paul's goal is not simply that the Galatians will just follow his apostolic pronouncements blindly. Rather, he wants them to become convinced themselves of his view of things. He wants them to recognize that justification by works is not from God. He wants them to recognize that it's a poisonous doctrine. And it's up to the Galatians to recognize it and reject it. Again, this has been a theme throughout the letter from the very get-go. He's calling them to, to have a gospel judgment so that they can recognize, even if an apostle like Paul preaches a false gospel, that they would not receive it. Even if an angel of heaven preaches a false gospel, he wants them to reject it. The Bible commentator Doug Moo speculates that this is the reason that Paul doesn't name the false teachers, but says, you know, who hindered you, or says the one who's troubling you, whoever he is. He wants the Galatians to come to the point where they recognize the false teachers for what they are and reject their teaching. Again, we've seen this theme before, but it's, it's the job of the church, the whole church. Under the leadership of elders, yes, but the whole church's job is to guard the truth of the gospel. This is one reason why we take as much care we do with admitting members. We want to only admit people to membership in our church who are ready to join us in resisting false gospels. So we want to know, do you know the true gospel? If you know the true gospel, you're a long way towards being able to identify a false gospel. So when we accept a member into our church, we're saying, join us in resisting false gospels and holding on to the true gospel. So this is one way we love each other. One way we work out our hope is by rejecting false teaching. This begins with us as individuals. We should be careful with who we listen to and read and who we recommend to others. If you're unsure about a writer or speaker, you can ask a mature Christian, is this person worth listening to? But even so, we want each of us to learn for ourselves to examine everything by Scripture and by the truth of the gospel. For every good ministry we might think of, we can think of a lot of things we appreciate and learn from them and things that we would reject. So we can say this about Ligonier and Desiring God and John MacArthur and the Gospel Colossian and Nine Marks. None of these are, are ex-cathedra, inerrant sources of truth. We, we benefit from them and we prove all things and hold fast to what is true. So each of us as individuals should grow in knowing the scriptures and knowing the gospel and discerning what is true. But this work of resisting false doctrines, again, is not only the work of us as individuals, it is the work of us as a church. This letter was written to churches, and Paul is aiming at the specific false teachers who were infecting and troubling the Galatian churches. This helps us realize our job is not to identify every false teacher who may be a potential threat. If we were to give ourselves to that, we'd have no time for anything else. Our concern is with the ones who might trouble our brothers and sisters or, or our family members. And so that means we have to know each other, know what we're susceptible to. We might find that the, the false gospels we're most likely to believe are the ones we invent ourselves, right? If we want to think more about how to make these judgments, you might go back and listen to the sermon from July 16th on Galatians 2, 1 through 14. But we see that Paul wants us to work out of our hope and guard the gospel by rejecting false teachers. Finally, Paul wants us to endure in faith and love and guard the gospel 
by preaching the cross of Christ. Throughout the letter, we've seen Paul be on the defensive. Apparently, he'd been accused of lying about his own testimony, so he has to defend himself from that. And judging from verse 11, it seems that perhaps the false teachers were trying to convince the Galatians that Paul also preached their false gospel, that he was preaching some version of circumcision. So Paul says in verse 11, Brothers, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, in the case of me preaching circumcision, the offense of the cross has been removed. So Paul says the, the proof of the difference between me and the brothers among you who are troubling you is that I'm being persecuted because I preach the cross of Christ. I preach the scandal of the cross. The idea of salvation by circumcision or of salvation by keeping the Mosaic law would make the cross pointless. When we think about the scandal of the cross, we can think of it in two ways. First, it's the scandal that Christ, the perfect Son of God, became a curse under the law, that he was crucified in the place of sinners. That's the first scandal. The Son of God died as if he were a sinner to take the place of sinners. The second scandal of the cross is a scandal to our pride, because the cross tells us that we can do nothing to save ourselves. No law-keeping, no rule-keeping can make us right with God. To be saved, we have to humble ourselves and admit that it should have been us on the cross, that Jesus' death is what we deserved, and that he came to take our place. The scandal of the cross requires us to say we're not saved by our works, but only the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We love each other by preaching the scandals of the cross. Paul says, keep preaching that gospel. Even if it means you're persecuted now, stay with it. Guard the truth of it. Keep preaching it. This is the message that saves. So how do we live now to prepare for eternity? We begin by knowing our hope knowing the false hopes that can't save, and knowing that in Christ we will be declared righteous on the last day. We will be received because of what Jesus has done. By faith in Christ, Christ will be of every advantage to us on that day. Know your hope. And work from your hope. Love your brothers and sisters. Patiently bear with them. Wait eagerly for what's to come. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out of your hope. And finally, guard the truth of your hope. Resist false teachers together and cling to the, to the scandal of the cross. Christ a curse for you. Christ doing for you what you could not do for yourselves. This is how we prepare for the last day. Let's pray. Father, we must confess that it's very easy to live in this world and assume that this is all there is. The, the assumptions of our secular age have infected us very deeply. 
And so we pray that you would allow us the grace to pop our heads above the fray and to see Jesus and to see that the last day is coming. Help us every day to live knowing our hope and to reject all false hopes. Father, help us to live by faith working through love. And help us, Father, to be a church that guards the gospel by preaching the scandal of the cross. We thank you for this good news that saved us, and we ask you to help us endure in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.